Hello, everyone, and welcome to this third segment of our RBQM podcast series. I'm Dr. Kristen Murphy, Global Head of the Change and Adoption Center of Excellence here at ParXL, and I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues, Amy Kissim Sands, Senior Vice President, Clinical Operations, and John Bell, Chief Quality Officer. Amy and John, welcome. Thank you. So as a little bit of an introduction to what we're going to talk about today, risk-based quality management is becoming the operational foundation of next-generation clinical research. By designing quality into trials, we focus on the most critical data and create a framework for efficiently identifying and addressing any risks to patients, the integrity of data, or regulatory compliance. However, consistent interpretation of RBCM approaches by regulatory inspectors is an area of concern. Ours is a highly regulated industry that is notably slow to adopt change. So it's no surprise that biopharmaceutical companies and CROs are still debating how to provide evidence-backed documentation to satisfy regulatory requirements for these risk-based approaches. So our discussion today, we're gonna focus in on how to work within the regulatory guardrails when establishing a risk assessment framework. So let's get started. Amy and John, regulations in most global agencies now allow for RBQM approaches. How has the mindset of regulatory agencies changed? And have regulatory inspectors shifted their own expectations and behaviors? Thank you, Kristen. Happy to be here. Always a good question, that. Like many things, RBQM is not new. About 20 years ago, I wrote a concept document around RBQM and I was not the first one. So yes, it's been around for a while. Why do these things take time to be adopted? I think there are three main reasons. The first one is the pharma industry waiting to see where the regulatory authorities are going. And the regulatory authorities are waiting for pharma to do something. And there is a lot of waiting involved, as we can say, sometimes decades of that. I think the second reason would be that you need to meet preconditions. A certain progress needs to happen for you to enable what you want to do. In this instance, it was data science that had to mature and also digitization of our industry, our clinical research industry. And that gives you the ability to do something like this. And then the last one is you need something of a burning platform, something that pushes the industry forward and the regulators forward to do it. And we had that with COVID. That was our reason and our start in this. Yeah, it was certainly a burning platform. (laughs) Amy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, like John, I've seen RBQM around for a long time. And I think that, you know, we've gone through many iterations of RBQM as it related to evolving from an SDV to SDR to targeted to triggered monitoring to on-site or remote. And what's happened, as John, you know, stated is we've had a transformation, a big transformation through technology advancements. And COVID really pushed us or propelled us to use these types of technologies in earnest or use them differently. And regulators have also evolved. They've come in with much more quick in regards to the guidance, especially around RBQM and how we need to manage within this space, especially with the recent guidance of E8 and how we need to keep a patient's voice at the center, the epicenter of what we need to do and leveraging these tactics of quality by design and what's critical versus non-critical data. But if we look at really kind of the behaviors of where we may still have a gap, 
Um, I think the gap is, is that we have the regulations that are out there. The industry is starting to embrace all of them and what they mean and what that exists with how we manage data. But it's really in regards to the acceptability of these types of models and where we need to really kind of continue with our partnership with the regulators is how it's not just the models to be put in place, but how those models are evaluated through the audits and the auditing of these types of strategies. So I think we've made incredible advancements. I think everybody is shifting to what those behaviors are. Still think that we have a gap from the front end to the back end in regards to the acceptability of them, but we've made great strides over the past many years. Yeah, we certainly have. I want to delve a little bit more into the evaluation side of things. So what does a risk assessment framework look like? And can you give examples of different levels of severity and how they are determined? Yeah, I'll start, John. Um, You know, this is something that certainly has evolved as well. And within the CRO organizations, and especially within ours, typically risk assessments is within a CRO. It was mainly concentrated on the operational delivery. Well, we've done an incredible job trying to really advance that into other critical pillars and looking at what's our medical and scientific risk. So looking at those safety of those patients, are we talking about healthy patients? Are we talking about the patient profiles? Is there an exposure to a new biologic? We look at the risk from a regulatory perspective, which is looking at the protocol. You know, what were the discussions of pre-IND with the regulatory authorities? Those early engagements to ask questions from a regulatory perspective. There's also the commercial end, looking at the very tail end. What's the market access to this biologic or this device? What's the competitive landscape? What's the payer model look like? And then finally, the operational risk, which is how are you going to deliver on that study? But you have to take all of these in consideration from a holistic or comprehensive approach. You need to look at them individually to understand the risk. And then you complement that by applying these quality by design principles and how we're going to use them to capture patient safety or their data integrity. What are the primary, the secondary endpoints, and how do we advance to the next phases? So it really is taking the risk assessments individually comprehensively and advancing that in order so that we have the right decisions at the right point to advance to the next stages within the trial. Yeah, it certainly is end-to-end truly, as well as quite an entire ecosystem that we need to be thinking about in this. So John, what are your thoughts? What's most important for you? Amy has done that very competently, so I can keep it really simple for my side. So for me, (laughs) you have basically two components. The first one is which risks are present? We usually risk collection, risk planning, whatever you want to call that. And and what I have found actually is that I go from the end product, it's my usual thing, go from the end product and work back. So if I intend to do this, then I take that and I work back in time to the start. And that is how I collect my risk. And always in our industry, you've got the three things. So it's patient safety, data integrity, regulatory compliance, and you wrap that around anything that you find. And I think there is a second component to this is also the planning, what you're going to do about it. And it's okay to do nothing. And that is a huge thing for people to get used to. You have, can have a lot of risk that you don't do anything about it. And as you say, and it's asking the question that is driven by the severity. How do we determine severity? Severity has got two components. 
it has impact. The impact can be something like I have to reprint this document or it can be there is damage to the patient or harm to the patient. Mm -hmm. So impact is one very important one. I may accept the reprinting of the document, but not so much the patient arm. And the second component is the likelihood of that risk realizing. And if it is very certain, clearly it raises and sometimes it's negligible. So with how we determine the severity, that, that's very critical. It's fundamental and it's at the heart of what risk management and putting together a risk management framework is. Yeah, so when you think about severity and you think about truly being end-to-end, -end, you also want to be really risk-minded. I can imagine people might start to constantly check data, which kind of defeats the purpose of having a critical data review. So how do you find the right balance, the right level of balance with this? I'll take that one. <laughs> it is a tricky question. Right from the start, right from the, my first days in quality, we have had this thing, how much do you do? How much checking is involved, et cetera? And there were many rules over the years, you know, half in plus one and 10% and just a wide variety of formulas that people have created. And I think it's based on a fallacy that there is some static rule that you can follow. And there really isn't. It moves back and forth constantly. It's a very, very dynamic process. So the first thing you have to let go of is that there is a balance that you can arrive at. If you have a risk-mindedness that is in the extreme and you go overboard with it, yes, it provides a sense of security, sometimes a little false, but you can become so over-focused that you actually grind to a halt and you can't make progress and you spend so much time, resource, effort and energy on that. Mm -hmm. So the biggest change in the maturing process when you come across this is risk is dynamic, it's not static. That's so important. And that all risks are not created equal. Some risks are okay. Yeah. Well, of course, I agree with everything of what John said, and I will take that of not all risk are created equal, not all data is equal, which is to the minute level about how do you get from the data checking. And I think we got to come from that premise that not all data is equal. And if we do a better job in the upfront stages to identify data of what's critical data, how do we put the parameters around that data with rigor about how we monitor it, either by its system monitoring, which we have all of these advanced with AI, certainly within data or digitalization, and then also partnering that with resource monitoring, which is your typical, which is medical oversight or clinical oversight. So it's a combination of those two things to understand what's important up front. How do we make sure that we have the rigor around it for how we're monitoring it? And then the other part of it, which John already touched on, is how do we stop to ask the question of what is really a quality issue versus what's an indicator or a signal of something that we need to evaluate more or investigate more to understand what's the probability of this, what's the impact of that. And I think that starts to build into how you build risk cultures. When you start to embed those types of thinking, you will start to get away from the over-checking. And as John has said many times, checking the checkers of checking the checkers. <laughs> so I think it's really important to have both of those aspects of understanding not everything is equal. And then how do we evaluate to stop to look at what is an issue versus a quality concern? Right. So I've come a long way in the 20 years. And what I just keep thinking about is this concept of both evolution as well as innovation, like evolution in how we're thinking, what we're doing, those behaviors, but also the innovation of 
AI and the data analytics that is enabling us to make those proper choices and finding that balance. So I think we have time for one more quick question. So what do you think the future of risk management looks like? Yeah, Kristen, I think that the future of risk management is something that we have an incredible opportunity here. The opportunity of the industry is to really leverage all of these advancements that we have seen within clinical development over the recent years. One part of that is we need to harvest all of the data that's at our fingertips in a more constructive and strategic way that can inform us and so that we can make proactive decisions. The other part of risk management really is how do we work in near real time? So we're not waiting for something to happen, but we're leveraging data that will inform us to take action now and not waiting for a monitoring visit to occur, which is reactive. But it's really kind of leveraging those tools like wearables that we see that are coming in directly from the patient or what are all these e-captures that we have with EMRs, with ECOAs, e-consent, and the statistical platforms that will help us in order to interpret data very quickly. And how do we leverage those resources that will be doing this in a more centralized fashion? So those resources in a different way that will have a different skill set. Honestly, there are more capabilities like our data scientists or data analytics and how we manage risk in real time. So I think overall, the future is going to be a combination of many things. It's going to be how do we take data, use it in a more meaningful way? How do we leverage the tools that are at our fingertips to use things in real time? And then finally, what are these new capabilities that this industry needs to involve in order to ensure that we can apply this process and these tools? Yeah, so with the continued innovation, constantly looking to see how do we continually um, evolve our risk-based approaches as well. So John, what are your thoughts on the future of risk management? I will say this, that Amy has answered it very comprehensively and I'm digging around for something to say. <laughs> so I'm just going to add one single sentence to that. I think the success in RBQM or risk management happens when it becomes the way we do clinical research instead of what we do to clinical research. Right. I think when we cross that boundary and get over that distinction, I think then we have success in RBQM. That's a great point to finish us off here. Thanks, John. Thank you both. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, John. And to our listeners, thank you for your time. And we hope you check out our future episodes on our RBQM podcast series. And if you missed the previous episodes, you can find them on parxl.com or wherever you found our current podcast that you tuned into today. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.